Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. And welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, August 3rd. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. Tonight, we'll get Father Frank Pavone's reaction to the pro-life ballot initiative that was voted down in Kansas. And we'll take you to Indiana, where lawmakers are hammering out a law to protect babies from abortion. We'll talk about the results from Tuesday's primary election and give you all the highlights of pro-life news for the week. Be sure to stay tuned to hear an inspirational story about a woman's effort to save babies one box at a time. Residents of Kansas have voted against an amendment to the state's constitution that would have given lawmakers in the state the ability to regulate abortion. With Tuesday's vote, Kansas became the first state in the nation to vote on an abortion-related issue since the Supreme Court's ruling to overturn federal protections for abortion granted under the 1973 landmark case Roe v. Wade. The constitutional amendment, backed by a campaign named Value Them Both, would have given elected representatives the ability to pass legislation relating to abortion in Kansas, which was restricted after the state's Supreme Court previously found the 1859 Kansas Constitution grants a natural right to abortion. At the time, the Associated Press called the race. Voters had rejected the amendment by more than 20 points. The question before voters, in the form of a confusingly worded constitutional amendment, was whether to end the right to abortion in Kansas by voting yes or preserve the right by voting no. I have with me here tonight Dr. Michael New, Research Associate of Political Science at the Catholic University of America, as well as an Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Welcome, Dr. New. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Good to see you. Dr. New, the results in Kansas on Tuesday night were certainly a disappointment. However, there were a number of factors at play regarding this decision, one of them being the amount of money spent by each side playing a prominent role. Could you share with us the facts about the money that was spent by each side? Sure. Uh, There was a lot of research on direct democracy. And when there are propositions on the ballot like there was in Kansas yesterday. Uh, A lot of research shows that typically the side that spends the most money has the best chance to win. And that's what happened. Uh, Supporters of legal abortion uh, raised and spent more than $1 million uh, than pro-lifers. I should also add a lot of that money came from out of state. Uh, It was not you know, grassroots Kansans. It was kind of out of state people who support legal abortion funding these campaigns or this campaign. So the fact that pro-lifers were outspent uh, unfortunately did play a role in uh, our defeat. Well, Dr. New, how can pro-lifers prevail then in future ballot campaigns? Well, there is, you know, research uh, about what we can do to be successful. And pro-lifers can be successful um, in a couple of ways. First, we can run campaigns in conservative states, which is what we did. Kansas is a right of center state. But more importantly, uh, our proposals have to become incremental, uh, clear, and hard to distort. Uh, There have been three times when we have succeeded in stopping uh, taxpayer funding of abortion through Medicaid, through the direct democracy, uh, that happened in West Virginia recently, also in Arkansas and Colorado. We've also succeeded in passing pro-life uh, parental involvement laws in three states using direct democracy. And that happened in Florida, in Alaska, 
and in Montana. So we have to make sure that, you know, we're pursuing things that are incremental, easy to understand, and hard to distort. Well, Dr. New, were these conditions met in regards to Kansas? Unfortunately, no. Um, you know, the value of the both amendment uh, was drafted in response to a 2019 Kansas Supreme Court ruling that found a, a right to an abortion in the Kansas Constitution. And Kansas pro-lifers wanted to pass this amendment to protect existing pro-life laws and make it possible to pass pro-life laws in the future. The problem that we ran into was it wasn't really clear in the short term what this amendment would do. And opponents argued that if this amendment passed, it would ban abortion everywhere in the state. Uh, that was not the case, uh, but since the implications of this amendment were unclear, it was possible for our opponents to kind of demonize and uh, distort uh, the impact of this amendment. I understand. And, and Dr. New, one thing that I personally noticed was when the value in them both was discussed in the media, the news seemed to be very biased. Um, in fact, one report that I was watching, value in them both was not even mentioned at all uh, in regards to the amendment. And so what's your opinion in regards to the media coverage of this amendment and abortion in general since Roe v. Wade was overturned? Yeah, I think after Dobbs, uh, media coverage of abortion has become you know, even more biased and more partisan, and that doesn't really work to the advantage of pro-lifers. Regarding value them both, I think pro-lifers had some legitimate concerns that if this amendment does not pass, it could result down the road in the judiciary requiring the state Medicaid program to cover abortion. So that would mean Kansans may, in the future, have to pay for abortions with their taxpayer dollars. That didn't come up. And I think if you look at, again, a lot of the media coverage uh, post-Dobbs, uh, you see a lot of attention giving to difficult situations where pregnant women you know, aren't receiving you know, proper medical care. But that's not because of the pro-life law. That's because doctors, in many cases, are just misunderstanding current policy. Uh, it's not because of the actions of pro-lifers, but that's really not getting the proper coverage that it really deserves. Well, Dr. New, what do you say to pro-lifers that might feel discouraged after, um, you know, this defeat and looking forward to the, the midterm elections? I'd say it's a setback, but don't despair. We're making enormous amounts of progress right now. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute, which up until 2006 or 2007 was Planned Parenthood's research arm, they just did an analysis of 11 states uh, that have passed protective pro-life laws. In those 11 states, 43 abortion facilities have shut down or at the very least, are not doing abortions anymore. You know, that's excellent news. Uh, Guttmacher predicts that 26 states are going to pass protective pro-life laws at some point. We also the Pregnancy Help Centers are getting more phone calls. Uh, Heartbeat International said that their hotline has seen an increase in volume by 15%. So we have a lot of great opportunities. You know, what happened yesterday was a disappointment and a setback, but, you know, we should move forward. We can do a lot of good protecting both mothers and their unborn children. Well, Dr. New, thank you so much for sharing your insights, and we appreciate all your work on the ground uh, that you do uh, every single day for the pro-life movement, and uh, this was a very important issue, and, and we appreciate your insights, and we hope you'll join us again. Oh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Thank you. And now we turn to Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, and his comments regarding Value Them Both. Brothers and sisters, Father Frank Pavone here, director of Priests for Life on this uh, very sunny morning here in Florida. Wanted to talk to you about the uh, Value Them Both Amendment in Kansas that did not pass yesterday, unfortunately. Uh, but I want to say, first of all, that uh, the abortion forces, of course, think that they won a victory. But when the quote-unquote victory 
uh, is for abortion, nobody wins. Not the babies, not uh, the mothers, not the fathers, not the uh, uh, abortion proponents. Nobody wins because abortion destroys everyone and everything it touches. Secondly, we have to keep in mind that uh, this amendment said something that is obvious, that the Kansas Constitution does not confer the right to an abortion. Whether this amendment passes or not, the fact still is it does not. It does not confer a right to abortion. In fact, no constitution confers a right to abortion, including our federal constitution, as the Supreme Court recently made clear. Thirdly, if you think that Kansans support, or anyone in America, uh, by any kind of majority, supports abortion on demand without limits throughout pregnancy, or being forced to pay for somebody else's abortion, fact of the matter is, they don't. So why does an amendment like this fail to pass? Well, because the other side lies to the public about what it actually says. And we saw those lies perpetuated by the media and millions of dollars from outside of Kansas by pro-abortion groups that want more and more killing of babies. They try to say to the people of Kansas, oh, this is going to take away your right to have any kind of abortion whatsoever, even in life-threatening circumstances. You know, my challenge to the other side is very simple. Can we have an honest ballot initiative where everybody on both sides of the issue actually informs the citizens of what the amendment actually says? See, that would be a challenge that the other side, although I'm making it again today, will not accept, cannot accept, because they know that it would never uh, meet their, their expectations. They would never succeed in stopping a pro-life amendment like this if they were honest with the people about what it actually says. We will continue to work with the people of Kansas. I have been up and down and across that state so many times over the decades. Uh, we know the pro-life commitment of the people and lawmakers of Kansas. We will continue uh, working uh, with you in Kansas uh, and with all of you friends, brothers and sisters in the pro-life movement to protect these babies and their moms and their families and uh, much, much more to come. Let's be ready to help those that are going to come into Kansas also from other places as an abortion destination. Let's help them to turn away from the lie of abortion and to choose life. God bless you. Father Frank Pavone here of Priests for Life. President Biden signed his second executive order on abortion on Wednesday during the inaugural meeting of his Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access. The order directs the Department of Health and Human Services to consider, quote, all appropriate actions to ensure health care providers comply with federal non-discrimination laws so that women receive medically necessary care without delay. And in what appears to be a clear violation of the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits taxpayer dollars from paying for most abortions, the order also will allow HHS to explore using Medicaid funds to pay expenses for those who cross state lines to receive an abortion. Speaking from isolation in the White House, where he is recovering from a resurgent case of COVID-19, Biden repeatedly spoke of a health care crisis brought on by the overturning of Roe v. Wade in June. And while he claimed we are, quote, doing all in our power to safeguard American women's right to choose abortion, he again conceded he doesn't have much power to control abortion now that states have regained that ability. After he signed the order, Vice President Kamala Harris, wearing a blue suit, and flanked by Attorney General Merrick Garland and Becerra, convened the meeting of the task force created when Biden signed his first executive order on abortion last month. We feel your presence, Mr. President, Harris assured the absent leader. 
Also this week, the Justice Department sued the state of Idaho over its abortion law that is set to be enacted August 25th. The law bans all abortions, with exceptions for rape and incest, but not to save the life of the mother. The suit contends the law violates a federal law guaranteeing life-saving medical care for patients at any hospital accepting Medicare funds. Idaho Governor Brad Little called the lawsuit an overreach, while Idaho's Attorney General Lawrence Wasden said the state's abortion law does not run afoul of the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. The suit is the Biden administration's first legal effort to protect abortion access since Roe was overturned. And now we turn to political news around the country. Republican Michigan gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon came out on top in Tuesday's primary, following an endorsement from former President Donald Trump. Dixon is pro-life and is also endorsed by Susan B. Anthony and Right to Life of Michigan. Tudor Dixon will run against incumbent Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer in November. Whitmer is an extreme abortion supporter. Carrie Lake, a former local TV news personality who was endorsed by President Trump, won the GOP nomination for governor in Arizona. Meanwhile, the Republican leadership in Arizona and on the national level are calling for the resignation of the Pinal County Elections Director, David Frisk, after some voting locations ran out of ballots in Tuesday's primary. The county acknowledged some precincts didn't have enough ballots and voters had to wait while more ballots were printed and distributed to the affected polling sites. Pinal County elections officials said there was an unprecedented demand for in-person ballots. Eric Schmidt defeated former Governor Eric Greitens, winning the Republican nomination in the Missouri Senate primary. Schmidt will look to fill the seat of Republican Senator Roy Blunt, who announced that he would not seek a third term. We did it. Now let's go save America, Schmidt tweeted after his victory was confirmed. Schmidt halted an improbably political comeback for Greitens, whose career has been marred by scandals, including accusations by his wife earlier this year that he physically and emotionally abused her and their children before their divorce. Schmidt also defeated St. Louis attorney Mark McCloskey, who gained notoriety after a photo of him and his wife pointing guns at BLM protesters in front of their home went viral. Former President Donald Trump threw a wrench in the race on Monday after he issued a statement endorsing Eric, although he never clarified which Eric, Greitens or Schmidt, that he was supporting. Both candidates were quick to claim and tout Trump's support. Schmidt will face off in November against Trudy Bush Valentine, an heiress to the Bush family brewing fortune. And that's political news in a nutshell. Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, a pro-life Republican from Indiana, was killed in a car accident in Elkhart, Indiana, Wednesday. She was 58. The Congresswoman's two passengers were killed, as was the driver of the second car. Indiana is in the news for the second week in a row as legislators called into a special session continue work to hammer out a bill to protect babies from abortion. The Indiana Senate passed a bill banning abortion except for rape and incest and to protect the life of the mother. The House is poised to vote on a similar measure. Governor Eric Holcomb is expected to sign the bill, but it's unclear if it would be enacted September 1st or November 1st. A bipartisan group of senators this week unveiled legislation that would guarantee access to abortion on the national level. Republican Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, the only pro-abortion Republicans in the Senate, 
joined Democrats Tim Kaine of Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona in introducing the Reproductive Freedom for All Act, which would allow abortion until viability and after viability if the mother's life was imperiled. The legislation would nullify laws enacted in the various states since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June. That would include near-total bans in effect in several states, as well as heartbeat laws and 15-week bans. The bill will not pass the Senate, and it's uncertain whether Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will even bring it to the floor for a vote. In a new Gallup poll, 8% of respondents identified abortion as the most important problem facing the nation. It's the highest-ranking abortion has received since 1984. The only issues that ranked ahead of abortion in importance are inflation and dysfunctional government. Immigration, gun control, racism, and crime were found to be less important to those responding to the poll. After 25 Democrat senators called on the Department of Veterans Affairs to begin offering abortion in all VA centers, Secretary Dennis McDonough said he would find ways to ensure female veterans have, have ways to abort their children, but did not comment directly on the senator's demand. It's unclear whether the VA would be legally able to offer abortion at its centers. The Veterans Health Care Act of 1992 prohibits abortion at VA facilities, but the senators in their letter cited the 1996 Veterans Health Care Eligibility Reform Act, which allows the department to provide needed medical care to veterans. In 2020, about 550,000 female veterans accessed health care services through the VA, according to the Navy Times. President Biden has nominated the attorney who lost the Dobbs case in the Supreme Court for a seat on the federal bench. Julie Rickleman, who represented the abortion business whose challenge to a 15-week law in Mississippi led to Roe v. Wade being overturned, has been nominated for a lifetime post on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which has jurisdiction over cases in Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Puerto Rico. Rickleman is currently the litigation director at the, Senator, at the Center for Reproductive Rights, an organization that exists solely to challenge abortion laws that protect the unborn and their mothers. The Georgia Department of Revenue this week confirmed that parents can claim their embryos as tax deductions. Georgia's Heartbeat Act, enacted last month, contains a personhood clause that redefines natural person to include the unborn. Parents can now claim an exemption in the amount of $3,000 per embryo. Seven Florida clergy members, two Christians, three Jews, one Unitarian, and a Buddhist, filed lawsuits against the state this week, saying Florida's 15-week abortion law violates their religious freedom. The law was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis in April and went into effect after Roe v. Wade was overturned. The central claim in five separate lawsuits is that the law, quote, imposes severe barriers and substantial burdens to their religious belief, speech, and conduct. A Florida rabbi filed a similar lawsuit in June. In the on-again, off-again column this week, Kentucky is once again allowed to enforce both its Heartbeat Act and a trigger ban that eliminates almost all abortion in the state. West Virginia legislators were sent home from their special session when the Senate amended a proposed bill and the House balked. Abortion remains legal in West Virginia until the two houses can hammer out a bill and send it to Governor Jim Justice for his signature. The stories were all heartbreaking and shocking. In 1997, Melissa Drexler was a high school senior in Toms River, New Jersey, when she gave birth to a baby in a bathroom stall during the, her prom. She plucked the baby from a toilet, put him in a plastic bag, and left him to die in a trash can. She became infamous across the nation as the prom mom because she was back on the dance floor after leaving her newborn son to die. She later served three years of a 20-year sentence for manslaughter. In Mobile, Alabama, in 1998, a young woman, aided by her mother, drowned her newborn baby in a toilet. In Houston, Texas, 13 babies were abandoned in a 10-month period between 1998 and 1999. Three of the babies were dead when they were discovered, one of them in a garbage bin at a high school. Her 15-year-old mother was charged with murder. 
lawmakers across the nation realized something had to be done to save these babies and give their mothers another option. One by one, starting with Texas in 1999, states began passing safe haven laws that allow mothers to legally surrender their newborns within certain guidelines. Now all 50 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, all have safe haven laws. Some states require the surrender within 72 hours of the child's birth. Some give up to 60 days. Babies can be dropped off at fire stations and hospitals, and the mother will not be charged with any crime. If she is offered help for her own situation, she is free to turn it down and leave. When Monica Kelsey learned she had been abandoned as an infant, she realized that having to come face to face with an authority figure to hand over the baby could be too hard for some women. She had seen a baby box at a church in South Africa where newborns could be safely surrendered without anyone seeing the mom and knew this could be the answer. She started her organization, Safe Haven Baby Boxes, to publicize safe haven laws and to give women an anonymous way to surrender their babies. Here's Monica describing how the baby boxes work. When a mom walks up to one of our Safe Haven Baby Boxes and she needs to utilize this resource that we have available for her, she's gonna walk directly up to the box She's gonna pull the little handle. She's gonna open up the door. As soon as this door is opened up, one of the alarms is already going off. It's a silent alarm that mom will not hear. When she places baby inside the box, another alarm goes off that she will not hear. When she shuts the door, she won't be able to reopen the door. The door actually locks once baby's placed inside. The baby can only be retrieved from the inside of the fire station, or in this case, the inside of the hospital. Inside, you'll see a green light that is always green if the, there is no baby in our box. Once there's a baby placed in our box, you'll see a green plus a yellow orangish light because the beam from across has been broken. After mom places her baby in one of our safe haven baby boxes, one of the staff or the EMTs or the paramedics or the nurses will come down to the baby box they're gonna open the inside door. They're gonna grab the bassinet and they're gonna head for the emergency room. We've invited Monica here this evening to talk about safe haven baby boxes and how lives are being saved. Welcome Monica and thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. Well, Monica, could you tell us about the baby box that you saw in South Africa and how it influenced you? Absolutely. You know, I was actually on a speaking tour in Cape Town, South Africa uh, with a another speaker named Pam Stenzel. And we were walking into a church and this was the only church in Cape Town that had what they called a baby safe. And as I'm walking by it, I, I was so intrigued by this because as a firefighter and a medic, I knew about the safe haven law, but I had never seen anything like this before. And so I asked the person that was walking us in, I said, what is this and what is it used for? And they said, well, women bring their children here at night so that they don't have to throw them in dumpsters if they don't want their faces seen. And, and so they had saved seven babies that year. And uh, so on the flight back from Cape Town, South Africa, on a Delta napkin, I hand drew my version of the baby box and then came back to the United States and started the uphill battle of getting them implemented. That's what I was going. That's my next question. How, how did you get it started? What, what, how did you, what hoops did you have to jump through? Oh my gosh. So the first thing I had to do was find somebody that would build me a box. You know, this had never been done in America before. And so I took my little Delta napkin to a builder in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I said, I want you to build me a baby box. And he says, a, a what? 
And I said, I want a baby box. I, I'm going to put these in fire stations and save babies. And and he's like, you know, well, for $700, I'll build you a prototype. So I wrote a check from my husband's account and walked out of there like a boss and thinking, you know, okay, this is going to be easy, not realizing how tough this really was going to be. Because then I had to get a legislator that believed in this. And so, you know, through the last six years, we've been able to uh, get people to understand that if it's a dumpster or a safe haven baby box that's an electronically monitored to the 911 system, that a baby box is going to be a better option than that dumpster, which we've been seeing across this country for many years. No, absolutely. So the first box, Monica, was installed in 2016. So how is it, has your project grown since then? Well, the very first baby box was placed in my firehouse in uh, in Woodburn, Indiana. My husband's the mayor. We kind of joke about this because it was kind of easy to talk him into allowing me to put a box in his firehouse. He wanted to sleep with his wife at night. And so... Um, and so that was the very first one in April of 2016. Um, on Monday of this week, I just blessed the 114th baby box in the nation. Oh, God bless. Uh, you also operate a hotline. What are moms looking for when they call that number? You know, no call is ever the same. Uh, there are different situations for different um, different people that call. I mean, we've helped a military mom surrender. Uh, we've helped a 13-year-old surrender. We've helped a 44-year-old surrender. Well, we've done nine adoption plans, uh, countless parenting plans. See, the, the hotline, I think people kind of think that we're only directing women to these boxes, and that's the farthest thing from the truth. What we're trying to do is give these women all of their safe and legal options um, that their law allows in their state, because we're getting calls from all over this country. And so if we give them options, they're going to choose what's best for them, because what I would do might not be what they would do. And so we have to make sure that they're okay with the, the option that they choose. And so we've done, I don't even know how many parenting plans we've done or how many resources to crisis pregnancy centers, um, but we've had a total of 21 babies in our boxes since November of 2017. We've helped 122 women safely surrender by handoffs. And then of course, nine adoptions. And I don't even know how many parenting plans we're up to now. So we, we do a lot. That, that uh, hotline is what we call the workhorse of our organization. Wow. Well, you know, Monica, your website includes instruct instructions also for people who would like to place baby boxes in their communities. Um, are there any more in the works right now? Oh, my gosh. We've probably got, uh, I'm going to say, we're, prob we're probably going to hit about 200 by uh, maybe the end of this year, beginning of next year. Um, and right now we're at 114. So we have a lot of communities that are seeing what it, what Indiana has done. And, you know, Indiana, prior to baby boxes, we were finding two to three dead babies in our state every year. And since we launched, we haven't had a dead baby in our state in the last six years. So the success lies in the numbers. And so people are seeing that and they want to be a part of it. Um, so we're, we're encouraged to see people being proactive uh, on this movement of safe haven surrenders. Monica, it must be very difficult for a mother to surrender her baby, but it really is an act of love, isn't it? You know, it truly is. Um, for a woman to basically say, I want what's best for my child and it's not me, that's heroic. Um, and I'll tell you, I get to walk alongside these moms. Um, that is, that's where I feel like uh, I'm bringing the most to these women because my, my birth mom did not have this back in 1973. There was no one to walk alongside her, you know, on her journey. And so I have become friends with a lot of these parents that have surrendered in our boxes, that utilized our services. And I'll tell you, they're some of the, some of the strongest women and men that I've ever met in my life. And I'll, I'll tell you, they're heroes. Um, I don't think they get enough credit. I think women who choose uh, to, to place their child for adoption or a safe surrender, I don't think we give them enough credit because their heart is breaking. 
um, for the betterment of their child. And we all should celebrate that. Amen. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Monica, we, we just really appreciate you taking the time from your, your, your work and, and uh, we are so inspired by what you're doing. And uh, we thank you for, for the life-saving work that you're doing. Well, thank you guys so much for having us. You know, Teresa, in 1998, I was a reporter in New York City, so the prom mom story was a really was a really big story. And the news editor at the time, his name is Ed Donnelly, a consummate newsman, very pro-life. He was angry. He was angry. And he was not as angry at prom mom herself as the culture that we created that allowed that allows people to think, well, I, I could have aborted the baby, so what's the difference? So that was really this is a the, the baby boxes, the safe haven is so important. It, you know, it's a different option, it's a better option. Don't don't kill your baby. And so we just want to make sure that everybody has the website for Monica. It's, S it's www.shbb.org. And the phone number is 888-742-2133. Yeah, and Leslie, I remember that story also, you know, mm -hmm. um, when, when it was happening. And um, it was such a very sad time. And I, I also find, you know, at, even in our pro-life work, there are so many people unaware of these safe haven laws Absolutely. and certainly about these baby boxes. Mm -hmm. So uh, we really want to encourage all of you to please share this information. Um, it's it's just as important as all the other information that we share as pro-lifers. But this is is a real valid option for these women um, to to be able to bring their their baby to a safe place. And and we're so grateful for the work that Monica is doing. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priests for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. If you have an idea for a story or would like to expose something in the abortion industry, please email us at media at priestsforlife.org. We hope that you will support this show and all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, Oceans of Mercy, Pro-Life is the New Punk Rock, and Primetime Live with Father Frank by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. And I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.